Amen. Let's give our Lord a hand this morning. The Bible tells us, uh, Solomon writes, that all of the heavens could not contain God's presence if it was material and if it could be measured. Um, you know, the last hundred years or so of history, really the last several hundred years of history, we've understood that our universe is much bigger than just our small little planet. And as we continue to discover more and more about um, what we know about our universe, we know that it's bigger and bigger and far more than we could ever measure. And God is bigger than that. Um, he is infinitely uh, more marvelous. Um, he is matchless than uh, compared to anything else of this world. And to sing that song, it puts in perspective that he is that big, yet his love is that directed toward us. And we are his, um, and, uh, and that is a privilege um, to know God as infinitely big as he is and also as personal um, as he is. Um, thank you so much for singing out this morning. Uh, we are kind of slowly moving back into what will eventually be a full um, Sunday morning service. Uh, we ha- will do at least one more of these abbreviated services, and then uh, the last half of July, we'll slowly kind of work our way to a more full, full service. Um, it looks like we're going to continue to have to uh, keep uh, or going to have to refrain from having childcare for at least the foreseeable future. Um, so we will be opening up the the back rooms for any families that might want to take their kids out there back there to uh to enjoy the service and still want to come um but uh it's going to be a little while before we have our normal sunday school normal child care nursery um environments um and uh we we hate that but just kind of the the lay of the land looks like we're going to be um stuck uh, using precaution and, and, and just kind of taking care of each other. So uh, just be patient with us. Thank you so much for being, um, being so faithful. Um, and uh, I've, I know some of you that are watching uh, that aren't here, still haven't come back and joining with us or aren't able to come with us, we, we love you and we're glad to be part of this family um, and glad that, that God has held us together and I believe will make us even stronger when all this is over with. But until it is, uh, we are going to continue to praise God and worship Him no matter what. Um, I do uh, just want to remind you, if you didn't receive or I, I didn't inform you this past week, um, we will not be having service tonight or Wednesday night. Um, Lindsay and I will be taking a little time off um, to pray for us. Um, and uh, as we use the best wisdom we can to take care of ourselves, we appreciate your prayers um, as uh, we uh, take a little time off. But tonight we won't have a service. But Wednesday night, uh, there will be a service going online at 7 o'clock in place of the normal worship hour. Um, so it'll be on demand, so you can fast forward all the way to the end if you want to, um, where Lindsay will be uh, doing a song for us. Um, so if you don't want to listen to what I have to say, at least go to the 35-minute mark and you'll hear her. Um, but uh, you can skip around. I have some good things to say, maybe not 30 minutes of good things to say, but maybe four or five. Um, but uh, you can scatter around the video and hear. I really think it's an appropriate message. It really deals with us being kind of halfway through this year that feels like 100 years in one, right? Um, and uh, if you're tired and if you're wearied um, and who isn't, um, I believe God's Word has something good for you and something helpful for you to, uh, to offer. So tune in Wednesday for that. But this morning, uh, we are going to look at Psalm 33. If you open your Bibles there, I want to read that passage up front. Uh, this is more of a, a, of a kind of a, a catch-all psalm that's going to kind of set the tone for us as we come off the heels of celebrating our nation's birthday, um, as we are here today to celebrate our nation's God, our God. Um, I believe this psalm um, is one that uh, it's one I've been reading a lot this past week. And thinking about what it means to be a nation who worships the Lord, the one true God, and, uh, and, and, and how grateful we are for our nation's history that has built in that faith and has given us this platform, um, but also how, um, how responsible we are to continue to carry that flame forward. So let's read God's Word. Uh, follow along with me, Psalms 33, or read the first 12 verses. 
Rejoice in the Lord, all you righteous, for praise from the upright is beautiful. Praise the Lord with the harp, make melody to him with an instrument of ten strings. Sing to him a new song, play skillfully with a shout of joy. For the word of the Lord is right, and all his work is done in truth. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deep in the storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes the plan to the people to no effect. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he has chosen as his own inheritance. We hear from this psalm uh, some from very core values and, and, and ideas that we hold, not just as Christians, but as Americans. Uh, these values that were built in and a part of uh, the infrastructure of our nation, pulled from God's Word, inspired by the Christian faith. We trust that regardless of man or woman's ability or inability to lead us in this day and age, we trust that our God is greater and higher than anyone of this land. He is our ruler. He is our king. And his guidance is what has led us this far and will continue to lead us. And you know, as we celebrate the Lord today, as we celebrate our nation's God today, of course, not everyone in our nation is joining in with us. Not everyone in our country believes in the God who created it, who sustains it, and, and just to be honest, that's okay. Because God's power isn't dependent on faith. right? God is not dependent or contingent on us believing in Him. Whether we believe or worship Him or not, He is in charge. He is in control. He is still good. He is still righteous. He is still sovereign. God's power isn't dependent on faith, but our power absolutely is. Our power as a nation, our power as churches, our power as individuals. Failing to acknowledge Him and worship Him has led our nation to its current state. Whereas there is much division, much hate, much intolerance on both aisles, both sides of the aisles, one would think that if we could just unify around our love for country alone, things might could get better. But a love for country isn't enough to unite us. Because a love for country is often abandoned in exchange for a want to control the country. We all have our ideas that would make our country the best it could be, which is why we struggle uniting with those who have different opinions, right? Even if we are Americans, we still are separated into our own factions, aren't we? Truly, the only hope for unity, the only certain pathway to harmony, is a collective submission and surrender to God as our king, to God as our ruler. I know this may sound like an impossible dream, but only because we often resist this notion. We too have rebel hearts, don't we? We too often have belligerent spirits, don't we? And of course, while we may never convince non-believers to back down, that's why it's so imperative for all believers to bow down. See, we may never convince non-believers that they need to worship the God that we worship and serve the God that we serve. We may never convince a majority of the country that they need to believe in Jesus as Savior, which is why it's so imperative and so important that believers bow down and worship God always. This notion can be seen as the underlying conviction in our founding fathers' vision and their organization of this country's government and the declaration of this country's freedom. 
No one can argue that in those days, the ratio of believers, of course, was far higher than it is now compared to non-believers. But the principle remains. The founders of this country knew of man's tendency to drift and turn from God towards unspiritual, ungodly human ideas, which is why certain measures were taken to embed our nation with a God-centeredness and a spiritual pillar. That there would be no king. But America would be a nation governed by law for people, uh, uh, for people. Perhaps the most crucial in our most chief cornerstone that we are a nation that puts people first. This suggestion uh, is this is suggested and signal that our nation would be one of equality and value. No ruling party would ever or should ever have dominion or greater domination or importance. Every law would be put in place to ensure that people, that everyone, would be given fair access. To opportunity. Now, of course, in its original form, we were still a work in progress. We are still a work in progress. That's not because our country was founded on broken ideas, but because our f- country was founded on enlightened ideas. Any other country would rarely change as much as ours has in such a short time, while still remaining anchored on its core principle founding values. See, history suggests that either the principles are replaced or the change doesn't happen. But in America, our DNA has allowed us to adopt and adapt while still persevering. What makes us so unique, we've always strived for a more perfect union while still presiding on the same principles of freedom, equality, value, opportunity, and justice. Our founders were believers. They didn't always agree on the window dressing of their faith, but they united around their theology. And this is so simple, it may seem complex because we don't really talk like this. They had a right understanding of the godness of God. As in, they knew that God was supreme, God was sovereign, and that He needed to be exalted. They didn't agree on everything about who God, what God was like, and how He revealed Himself. Nobody does, right? Even Christians, denominations, we can't agree with each other. But the founders of this country had a right understanding of the godness, of the supremacy, of the sovereignty of our Creator. And they also had a right understanding of the humanness of humans. As in, we are at His mercy. We were made in His image. We have value, but we need protection and we need guidance. And we are dependent on our Creator. Everyone deserves to be respected and protected. The best way to ensure this is to exalt our shared Creator. The founders stressed the importance of worship in their words and their actions. If you read their speeches, they often sound like prayers because that's what they were. Now, of course, there's no way to know that if they knew their words would be read and repeated all these years later, but 244 years later, we're doing just that. Now, we're just a few years away from a major milestone for our country, 250 years, but I want to take you back to America's 150th birthday. I've spent a couple of weeks studying that milestone. In 1926, uh, a celebration was held in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, um, where the Declaration, of course, was originally penned. Calvin Coolidge, President Calvin Coolidge, presided over that celebration. And if you read his speech, and I encourage you to, um, to take some time to do that, you'll find that President Coolidge talks about the two great American ideals, freedom and justice. Now, the documents that were written to charter our country prove over and over again to be both static and dynamic. 
Static as in, they, uh, as in adequacy and sufficiency to outline and uphold freedom and justice. As in how they were written in the original intent and as they were crafted all those years ago, they were written with an adequacy and a sufficiency to outline and uphold freedom and justice, which is why all these years later, we continue to operate based on those original principles and those original documents. But they were also dynamic. Dynamic in application and adaptability to ensure that everyone enjoys freedom and justice. And of course, everyone has been redefined over the years, right? And rightfully so, because as we've understood and grown and learned what it means to be a land of freedom and justice. See, Coolidge marvels at the versatility and the prescient nature of not just the Declaration and the Constitution, but the vision and inspiration behind them behind the team that put them together. In fact, Coolidge champions unsung heroes who planted the seeds of these ideals in the minds and hearts of those who would go on to draft these documents. These unsung heroes were none other than Christians, specifically pastors and church members, because before there was a great revolution, there was a great awakening. Pastors like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitefield led a revival spirit through the Northeast that led to the courage and the boldness to lead the American Revolution from a dream to reality. Coolidge talks about how it was the migration of entire congregations looking for freedom to express their faith and its values that helped cultivate a colonial atmosphere ripe for revolution as churches were planted and grew throughout the colonies. These ideals of freedom and justice spread and the dream for a society and culture wherein everyone was valuable and had opportunity to live a life that glorified God and contribute to a greater good. That was the original American dream, not one of personal prosperity, but aiming to be a nation under God that was for people. Listen to some of the excerpts from that speech that Coolidge gave all those years ago. No one can examine this record and escape the conclusion that in the great outline of its principles, the Declaration was the result of the religious teachings of the preceding period, that period of a great awakening. He goes on. They are found in the text, the sermons, the writings of the early colonial clergy who were earnestly undertaking to instruct their congregations in the great mystery of how to live. They preached equality because they believed in the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. They believed that God was our creator and our ruler and that we all shared in this life together under His control, in His image. They justified freedom by the text that we were created in the divine image, all partakers of the divine spirit. It's from there that Coolidge looks forward and charges his generation and every generation to come not to forget these ideals that hold us together because they're not American, they're Christian. He warns that these ideals may become so American one day that we forget their inspiration. That there could indeed be generations to come who understand freedom and justice and love and mercy as American values without knowing their Christian origin. He would say, we cannot continue to enjoy the result if we neglect and abandon the cause. These ideals apart from faith could and would devolve and be mingled into lesser spirits and result in something far less. Because without the conviction that we are all under a single sovereign, perfect creator, without the conviction that we are all united together by a shared and perfect humanity, we would turn each other into our enemies and turn this country into a battlefield where it's all about making more and having more control. 
Coolidge reminds us that our American freedom is not freedom from, but freedom to. Being free to serve God. Being free to do, to live a fulfilled life in Him. Because if it ever becomes about freedom from the divine standard, we will not be free anymore. Coolidge warns that while even his generation considered themselves smarter and had access to more than previous, that they could not ignore the spark behind the American flame. He said this, Before we can understand their conclusions, we must go back and review the course which they followed. We must think the thoughts which they thought. Their intellectual life centered around the meeting house. They were intent upon religious worship. While they were always among them men of deep learning and later those who had comparatively large possessions, the mind of the people was not so much engrossed in how much they knew or how much they had as in how they were going to live. That it wasn't about their wisdom or their wealth. It was about their ambition and their desire to live a life that honored God. While scantily provided with other literature, they were, there was a wide adequance with the Scriptures. He concludes like this. No other theory is adequate to explain or comprehend the Declaration of Independence. It is a product of the spiritual insight of the people. We live in an age of science and abounding acclamation of material things. These did not create our Declaration. Our Declaration created them. The things of the Spirit come first. Unless we cling to that, all other material prosperity, overwhelming though it may appear, will turn into a barren scepter in our grasp. If we are to maintain the great heritage which has been bequeathed to us, we must be like-minded as the fathers who created it. We must not sink into a pagan materialism. We must, strive, we must cultivate the reverence which they had for the things that are holy. We must follow the spiritual and the moral leadership which they showed. We must keep replenished that they may glow with a more compelling flame. The altar fires before which they worshipped. Now that doesn't sound like a speech that would come from a president in our day, does it? But I'm glad it came from one in history. Everything he said was so true. And of course we can say, wow, if only everyone had taken this advice. The last hundred years may be so much different. In hindsight, on the heels of the transformation America was about to go through, socially, morally, economically, his words prove even more pressing and sobering. But here's what I think we should draw, not only from his words, because we mostly agreed with him before we even heard what he had to say. Maybe he helps articulate and put the proper frame around our convictions. Notice his words weren't combative or condescending, but they were convicting to every Christian and believer who cares so deeply about this nation, but more than that, is consciously in tune with the kingdom that God is building and our responsibility in this life to fan the flame and prepare the way to that day. It is right for us to give serious consideration to our obligation as Christians in this country. Now more than ever, our faith matters and our faithfulness matters. Not because it's up to us to keep the flame burning, but it is up to us to fan the flame. It seems a common sentiment to become disheartened and detached from society because of how far unchurched our country may now be. But what our country needs to see, what our country has always been saved by, is the driving force of a church that thrives under pressure. Whether from a tyrannical government across the sea or a transforming, transforming culture from sea to sea. We aren't surprised by the drift of our country. We know that the only hope to quell the slide, to reverse the tide, is to fan a far greater and brighter flame. 
You see, our political discourse, everyone wants to wave the American flag and claim to interpret the ideals the right way. But if we wave the flag without realizing where its threads come from, where its design came from, where its inspiration was drawn from, we will delve into a discourse in a battle that we cannot win and will accomplish no good at all. We opened with a psalm that put into context where we come from, our nation, but also our lives. But I want to spend the last few minutes referencing a couple passages of Scripture that I believe will help aim us forward and help us fan this flame for our generation and for generations to come. You don't have to turn to these scriptures with me, but I do want to show them to you before we get there. The scriptures that I would love for you to study this week and give attention to in your own devotion this week is from Matthew 5, Genesis 18, and Galatians 5. And really briefly, I'll touch on all three of those. We aren't going to read all of these, and I encourage you to make these objects of your study. Matthew 5, Jesus kick-started his movement around an audience that was looking and expecting for a Messiah to start a revolution. He, of course, did start a revolution, but not one of war, but one of faith. The system that he would put in place would go on to change the world, and to this day, we reap its benefits. Jesus stood in front of a group of outcasts, downtrodden and undermined people, and called them blessed. He called them valuable and told them that though they had been told they didn't matter, they absolutely did. Jesus would take this group and turn the world upside down with them and through them, and it all began with a charge He gave over them. Hear this scripture from Matthew 5. You've heard it before. Hopefully you know most of it by heart. In Matthew 5, verse 13 through 16, Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth. If the salt loses its flavor, how will it be seasoned? It is then no good and must be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand and gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Jesus says, I know the world is dark, decaying, and destructive. And that's why I'm sending you to brighten it, to preserve it, and to bring refuge to it. He said the secret in changing this world is for his followers to be salt and light and refuge. Show the world that God is not fed up or has not checked out. He cares. He so cares that he sent Jesus to die to bring salvation to everyone. And while everyone doesn't believe and won't believe, those who do believe are to be put on blast what God has done by being salt and light and refuge, by showing people who Jesus is, our country founded on these ideals. We are meant to be light in house and abroad, to preserve and protect, fight against the natural decay and prevent against any man-made chaos, to be a place of refuge for everyone by all means, every tribe, tongue, race, or creed. We, as the church, must continue to keep these principles core to our mission, even if a majority have downplayed them or misinterpreted them. You may wonder, at what point are our efforts no good, though? At what point do we cease to do good, and should we just give up and wait for the rapture? That's a good question, and that's where I want to reference Genesis 18. You all know the story of Abraham, how God used him to build a nation that Jesus would come through eventually. But before all that, Abraham was just a herdsman. He had a small family tribe. His nephew Lot had left home and needed a place to crash. Abraham welcomed him into his traveling band. 
Lot, of course, grew tired of Abraham as well, and it was drawn in by the biggest bustling city of the day, Sodom. Sodom and Gomorrah were a part of a, a network of cities, twin cities in the Valley of Salt. Salt was a new revolutionary business in that day because it meant that meat could be preserved and that it didn't require living hand-to-mouth day-to-day. Lot was drawn in by this land, by what it had to offer. He ended up taking residence in Sodom and becoming a leader in Sodom. Over time, although Sodom was known for the salt mines that preserved things, it became more known for its moral decline. Outsiders were not welcome. Insiders were divided between haves and have-nots. And those with power did whatever they wanted and took whatever they wanted with whomever they wanted. They became idle and complacent regarding the vision for this network of cities. Meant to offer the world a better tomorrow, they were making it darker by the day. Many inside the cities began to cry out to God because of the oppression they were suffering. Immoral men did what they wanted with whom they wanted without asking or regarding what was right. If you happen to wander into this city looking to trade or find a rest, you would not likely leave alive. The valley's cry grew and grew, and God decided to do something about it. Something had to be done. Because these cities no longer served their purpose, God was going to judge them and bring them into their destruction. God confided in Abraham what he was about to do and why he was about to do it. And Abraham immediately had a heart for Lot, his nephew. He turned toward the Lord, help, hoping to find help for Lot. And in the dialogue between Abraham and God, we learn something extraordinary. You've heard these verses before. Abraham comes to God in Genesis 18 and says, Would you destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous in the city. Would you destroy the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous that were in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing as to slay the righteous with the wicked, so the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? So the Lord said, If I find fifty righteous within the city, I will spare it for their sakes. Abraham needles him down from fifty to twenty to ten. But don't miss the real message here. God says that a few righteous would cause him to spare all the wicked. Do you see that? Now, of course, we would think, well, wouldn't the righteous, wouldn't the wicked continue to sin? How can that be any good? Well, there's no easy solution. But God's intent is that the few righteous could shine and preserve and comfort so effectively, the tide could be turned, the moral and spiritual revolution could occur. God told Abraham that if only 1% were righteous, he would spare the whole. Do you get that? 10 would have been about 1% of the population. God would spare the whole if just 1% were righteous. Because that's how much hope and potential for change righteousness offers the world, even if it's so much outnumbered. So our default response to our enemies should not be one of judgment. If God's response isn't judgment, we must be like Abraham and intercede. We must be what Lot struggled to be, light in a dark world, salt for a decaying world, and refuge for a destructive world. And of course, it's dark, and it's decaying, and it's destructive, but our mission has not changed. And God's grace has not lessened. There is a temptation to give up. There is a temptation to give in, to give up our faithfulness, to give in to our flesh. But may we be reminded by the President Coolidge's words, that is how America falls. 
And may we be reminded by the even greater words of Jesus, that's how the church fails. And may we hear the word of God, that's how the world fades away. You have been given freedom. We have been given freedom. Freedom to serve God and His kingdom. May we not assume this freedom is merely a tool to do what we want, however we want, like Sodom did. Let's remember that our freedom is a gift because Jesus was judged for us and brought justice to all and gave value to all. That's why the American dream became a reality, so that we might protect one another, wrap up one another's wounds, shine a light of hope. That's why God blessed the American Revolution, and God will always bless America if we hold fast these truths. There is a temptation to anchor our freedom in something else, something less. There is a temptation to use our freedom for something else and something less. Often the church gets distracted from our mission because we're so consumed by competition. This isn't a problem anywhere else in the world but America. We've stumbled into this arena. We compete with each other as Christians, trying to prove who's more holy, who's right, over the other. We judge one another based on who is less right. And as a result, the church has gotten smaller. And the spirit that, ha- that spirit has made the church less desirable and made Christians more miserable. Church, we need to come together as believers now more than ever so that we might go out and represent the Lord like we've been called to do. Paul wrote to the Galatian church that was struggling to keep Christ front and center. They were divided by race and traditions and strength versus weaknesses. The Jewish believers were pushing their interpretation as the only way, emphasizing their credibility over what Christ had done. Many churches do this to this day, and that's why we're so divided. But may we know that any doctrine or teaching that obstructs the universal equality and value in Christian salvation is flat-out wrong. Let me translate that for you. Any Christian idea, Christian idea that tries to make a a, a caste system, that tries to categorize Christians and put some over the other is wrong and offensive to God. We are all equal in Christ. The ground is level at the foot of the cross and dare we ever try to make it elevated. There are no better Christians because we all belong to Jesus We're equally loved and equally empowered. And if we all would unify around this identity, the church would not be so divided. And we might get a little brighter. Here's what Paul charged the Galatian church regarding their freedom. He says, stand fast in the liberty by which Christ has made you free. Do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. For we, through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision or the things that we use to divide us avails for nothing. But the only thing that counts is faith working itself through love. Christians, if we all united around this, we'd be less at war with one another and more on mission together and bringing Jesus to our world. Paul says in verse 13 of chapter 5, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour each other, beware lest you be consumed by one another.
And that's just to the church, not the nation. It's like President Coolidge said, the fires of our altars must be lit and burning bright before our nation will ever get back in the right direction. I think God's Word has presented a compelling and convicting case before us today about what our calling in as is as Christians. Would you all agree with me that we need to do much better? If we want a better America, we've got to be a brighter church. We've got to be light and salt and refuge. If we want America return, to return to faith, we've got to remain in the faith. If we want America's flame to burn bright, we've got to keep our flame burning bright. And come on, this is bigger than America. This is the kingdom of God. Bigger and beyond this generation in this country, along with all other citizens of all other nations, we are building towards something greater. We must keep this flame ablaze. We must keep fanning the flames of our altars to our world. We can take our renewed ambition and motivation today if we first choose to renew our faith and begin interceding for others and set out to do the only thing that counts, love like Christ has loved us and stand for the equality of every creature under His creation. Would you respond to this invitation today? Would you come and find a spirit of rededication, not as just an American but as a Christian in the most privileged, blessed generation to ever live. Our lights ought to be that much brighter. Our salt, salt ought to be that much more effective. Our refuge ought to be that much more comforting. Perhaps putting your faith in Christ for the first time or maybe renewing it for the hundredth time. Today is your day, no matter what. To say, I'm going to keep the fire burning on my altar. I'm going to fan the flame in my country. Because we are building toward a kingdom that deserves nothing less than me living out the righteous life I've been given. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this invitation to renew our faith. Lord, it's can't be overstated that in our country right now we have been given a platform that nobody else in any generation prior has ever been given we've been given an opportunity to be light and salt and refuge like nobody before us and like the president said before if we don't look back at how we've got here we won't get anywhere in the future Father, as we sing this song, as we hear the words of an invitation that you've given to us, as we've heard this compelling and convicting invitation that we've been uh, offered through the Word, Lord, you said you would spare a nation if just 1% were righteous. Lord, if only we as Christians would stand up in our righteousness as believers, what a difference we might could make. That we might would stand fast in our liberty. And not use our faith to fight wars and to entangle in arguments, but use our faith to unite and love one another so that Jesus might receive the glory he deserves as king of all creation. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing this song out. If you have a need, I'm praying for you. Would you say yes to God as he invites you today to this great mission?
this great opportunity 